welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 108. And as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you as always that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your social media stories. Also, if you are listening on the iTunes podcast app, please feel free to leave us a rating and potentially write us a review. That would be greatly appreciated. But without further ado, jumping straight into episode 108, we've got a Q&A for you today. So Jack, the first question of the day says, when calculating weekly weight loss targets, should you use your original weight or should you recalculate it weekly? So ultimately you should recalculate it weekly because that's what your new weight is. So it's quite a simple answer. And because it's percentage based, it's very easy to do. And even if you use an Excel spreadsheet, you just do that fancy drag down thing, and then it will automatically use the formula to, to recalculate it. So it is quite simple. Mm, I couldn't agree more, you know, cause generally weight loss targets are anywhere between 0.5 to 1% of your body weight each week. So let's say that you started off your weight loss journey at 100 kilograms, 0.5 to 1% of 100 kilograms would be anywhere between half a kilogram to one kilogram lost per week. But then let's say that, you know, you lost a decent amount of weight, right? You got down to 70 kilograms. Then if you were still aiming for 0.5 to 1% of your body weight lost per week, you'd be looking to lose anywhere between 350 to 700 grams lost per week. And I would say that, you know, definitely the beginning of a weight loss journey, right? And the heavier you are, the more body fat that you have, you can definitely afford to go closer to that 1% loss per week. It's really only as you start to get much, much leaner that you should start going closer to that 0.5% loss per week, just in order to retain as much muscle mass as possible. Yeah, basically the, the leaner you get, the higher risk there is of muscle loss. And therefore you need to go for that slower rate of loss as opposed to like the one or even sometimes people will go above 1% uh, in the early phases of a diet, especially in phases like a mini cut. Oh yeah, of course. You know, in like early phases of a mini cut, you probably go closer to like 1.5%. Heck, maybe sometimes even 2% like in mm. that first week. Yeah, I would say 2% kind of incidentally, not necessarily on purpose. Like there's mm. going to naturally be a huge drop in that first week of, of fluid and glycogen in the mini cut. Yeah, absolutely. But in the later stages, 0.5 to 1% of actual tissue. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, hopefully that answers your question, right? And gets you mm -hmm. on the right track. <laughs> yeah. Probably our most succinct answer in many episodes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Okay. So moving on to this next one, this says, what's something you learned during your university studies that blew your minds? What blew your mind at uni, Jack? So I'll let you start this one off. Wow. Okay. What blew my mind? This might not sound super exciting to some people, but it did kind of change my life. Uni helped me start drinking coffee, you know? <laughs> and the reason why I drink coffee now is because of my university studies, because 
I learned so much about the health benefits and the performance benefits and the cognitive benefits of coffee. Literally every single semester, there was at least one lecture, you know, or multiple lectures on coffee and caffeine, and they just convinced me to start drinking the stuff. So yeah, it wasn't actually until- Was it it me or was it the lectures? It was a combination of the lectures, but also definitely you had some very, kind peer pressure influence there during one of our swap back weeks but basically growing up as a kid my whole life i was always like you know getting my parents black coffee from the pot and like bringing them cups in the morning and stuff and like i remember taking a sip once as a little kid and honestly like growing up in the u.s like people literally just drink really, really strong black coffee over there. And I remember taking a sip as a little kid. I'm like, like this stuff is disgusting, right? It tasted gross. And also I noticed that when people didn't drink it, they were like really grumpy. And I'm like, I'm not gonna have this stuff ever in my life, right? So it wasn't until I was 19 years old and I'd had a whole year and a half of uni under my belt being like, you know, little hints here and there from different lectures, like, hey, this coffee stuff, you know, it's actually, it's pretty good for you, right? And then we were in a week of swap back and I was almost falling asleep and we were over your house. You're like, do you want a coffee? And I'm like, I've never had the stuff. And uh, I had my very first long black and boy, I studied very well that day. And also I had one of the best workouts of my life. (laughs) I still remember, I literally just felt like I was on drugs. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that was an interesting phase of our lives where like you got addicted to coffee and you kind of made me have a lot more coffee as well. (laughs) And we went through this phase of my parents had a, like a normal coffee machine. And basically what Tiara would do is she would load up the coffee machine and then keep pressing the double shot. So instead of having a long black, which is just a double shot and then some hot water, you would just keep pressing the double shot. And it was a buttload of caffeine. It was, but at the same time, you know, the the amount of coffee juice that those machines give you is just pathetic, man. Yeah, but that's why you fill it up with hot water afterwards. But but I'm just like, man, why not? I won't boil the kettle, right? I'll just keep pressing this button. It heats up the water for me and I get a little bit more of the good bean juice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, like I remember having that for a few mornings in a row and like my heart rate just went crazy and I wouldn't, I wouldn't get any extra benefits. It would just be a high heart rate, Yeah. which wasn't good for studying. Yeah, I know. I'm definitely one of those people, you know, who have gone through periods of my life who thinks like, you know, more is better. Mm. So I went from absolutely zero coffee to then boy, I was having like four or five a day sometimes. And it got to that point where I'm like, you know, I'm so tired, I need a coffee. And then like, I would have a coffee and it would make me even more tired. Yeah. yeah. Boy, it was tough. But hey, I only have one per day now, or sometimes two, you know. I usually either have a coffee and a pre-workout on training days, or on rest days, I've, I have two coffees. Yeah, same. Yeah, but uh, that's just what blew my mind. You know, and I swear I wrote so many different assignments and answered so many questions and gave different presentations on the wonderful benefits of coffee during uni. So I love the stuff. It blew my mind. It changed my life and it will continue to do so till the day I die. (laughs) (laughs) So Jack, I want to know what blew your mind? Cool. So probably like you, it wasn't some like fact, like I could say something about olive oil like olive oil stood out to me because like i learned that it has hydroxytyrosol 
like you need to buy the extra version of olive oil it needs to be cold pressed like that was something i found pretty neat and how hydroxytyrosol uh, in like works with nrf2 as an antioxidant pathway which is why olive oil is is touted as so beneficial and that kind of stuff and i really liked the uh, nutrigenomics and nutrigenetics i think basically which is how what you eat can actually alter your gene coding which mm -hmm. i found really interesting so for example like if you stop having a lot of lactose so basically as as infants were given lactose because we drink our mother's breast milk but if you go through a period of not having that breast milk or not having any dairy after the breast milk period then you can stop producing the lactase enzyme which is responsible for breaking down lactose and like that's just an example of how consistently having dairy ensures that you keep producing that lactase enzyme and i just found that really interesting how nutrition can have such a obvious benefit in terms of well, not even just a benefit just an impact on our gene expression yeah it is super duper fascinating yeah. so boy. that's not what i was all i was going to say so th those are just examples of what i could say <laughs> but what i what probably impacted me the most was just viewing nutrition in a different light and we kind of did a incidentally did a post on this on our tbd instagram it was like a picture of a burger highly recommend you guys check that out it was quite fun to make but essentially like before uni and in high school i would always look at food black and white good and bad and i would associate a certain amount of guilt or uh, responsibility or irresponsibility in terms of eating certain foods so like I would have a designated meal each week which I would eat bad foods and then for the rest of the week I would eat good foods without even considering necessarily the nutrient content or the total energy content. And what uni really helped me with was basically just viewing food as food and acknowledging that there's different types of foods, different foods have different nutrient contents, there's foods that are less nutritious, more nutritious and there's not really a right or wrong in terms of what you eat it's just okay it's important to have certain foods and certain quantities of foods to ensure that you stay healthy and you reach your targets in terms of what your goals are so for people like Tierra and i ensuring that we eat enough or don't eat enough in in our case right now but there's no need to associate certain feelings with with the type of foods that you eat Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more, right? I certainly think that all those years at uni really helped us develop a much healthier relationship with food just simply through education. Mm, education, yeah, that is. And that's why what we hope this podcast helps people with. And I think education really is the missing piece of the puzzle for so many people. And we don't mean that in a high and mighty way. It's just like once you can view nutrition as nutrition and not as emotions, it's very different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's the thing with that burger post, right? Because mm. if you're just like, burgers are bad, burgers are unhealthy, burgers will make you fat, right? But when you actually look at the ingredients in a burger, and even if you pulled that burger apart and you spread it out on your plate, right? You're like, damn, I've actually got some lean red meat here, right? That's a good source of iron. Look, I've got a whole meal bun. That's got a good amount of whole grain carbohydrates in it and a bit of fiber. Oh, hey, I've got some tomatoes and some pickles, right? And some lettuce. That's a good amount of vegetables. Oh, hell yeah. There's a slice of pineapple on there. Got some fruit in there. Mm. Ooh, a slice of cheese. Man, that's some good quality fats. I got some calcium, mm. right? That's going to help satiate me. This is a damn good balanced meal, right? Yeah. Something my mother would serve me, <laughs> right? But then like 
you stack it all up and you're like, oh, you better avoid that. Yeah, and obviously there are exceptions. Like if you go out to Macca's and Hungry Jack's and buy a burger, mm. that's going to be very different to a burger you might get at Grilled or one that you might make at home or even burgers that have different ingredients. Like you could whack on a kilo of deep fried bacon and crumb chicken onto that burger and mm-hmm. it won't be quite the same as what Tierra just said. Yeah, exactly. But it's about what's between the buns. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, just a reminder that we post regular content on our Instagram and YouTube channel. You can find those platforms by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians. See you there. But I think something else, honestly, I just think that what really blew my mind was seriously in our dietetic studies that really helped me appreciate nutrition and just have a healthier relationship with food is that it doesn't always just come down to micronutrients in every single circumstance. And, you know, I really learned this through the hospital in that, like, when you're at the hospital, they put such a huge emphasis on high protein, high energy foods, right? Because when people are sick, their appetite completely goes away, okay? And I think anyone can attest to that. Like, when you're ill, you don't really feel like eating, man. But if you don't eat and you're ill and you're trying to recover from an illness, you're trying to recover from a surgery, good luck recovering if you're not getting enough protein and enough calories Mm. into you. So that's something that I really had to come to peace with at the hospital is that, you know, they're not giving all the patients celery and carrot sticks, all right? And they're actually telling people who don't have appetites like, hey, eat your meat and eat your dessert first Mm. before you even think about touching that broccoli, Mm. okay? so Go for the sweetest, most palatable foods first that you can Mm -hmm. actually consume and that will give you the most bang for your buck in terms of energy and protein. Yeah, exactly. So, um, and yeah, someone on that note, someone actually asked me recently about a, unfortunately someone they know has cancer and they were basically asking like, okay, what diet can I give my uh, friend with cancer in order to help them? And unfortunately with cancer, like there, there has been some research on specific dietary approaches, but Like what if you give someone a special diet for cancer, let's say a ketogenic diet, because there is a small amount of research to indicate that depriving the cancer cells of glucose might actually help. But if you give someone someone a keto diet and they hate it and they lose weight, they're probably going to, unfortunately, their condition will worsen because they're not eating enough Mm -hmm. rather than just eating an abundance of food and maintaining their body weight and maintaining their energy. So that's quite a, a decent example there. Yeah, and it's so interesting that you say that because at uni, I actually did a huge chunk of my dietetic placement in the hospital on the oncology ward, right? And it's a whole different ballgame compared to other wards because, again, when people are undergoing like radiotherapy and chemotherapy, right? Like, not only do they not have an appetite, but also like you can just get some really nasty side effects. Like you can get ulcers in your mouth and right your your throat really hurts, just all these awful things and it's actually really difficult to eat. So a lot of cancer patients, right, they're actually on like nasogastric tubes and things like that. Or if they can eat, you just have to be really strategic as a dietitian about making sure that they're eating foods that don't cause them any pain when they're eating that food, right? Mm. Or that they can actually swallow it comfortably. So you have to take all of these different things into account, right? So for example, let's say someone that has had radiotherapy, right? And they've got these really awful ulcers in their mouth and their throat, and it is really painful to actually intake food. You wouldn't necessarily recommend like, 
oh, hey, let's get some slices of crunchy wholemeal toast for your breakfast and a big bowl of cornflakes, right, with a bunch of chopped up fruits. Like, that'll be, sure, a nutritious breakfast, but boy, it's going to be really painful to eat, right? So when you're actually talking to a patient, especially when you're talking about what they're going to eat when they are discharged and they go home, you actually get to brainstorm with them some really high calorie palatable food choices that they could eat that are super delicious, right? And that wouldn't actually cause them any pain. So for example, you start brainstorming how someone can make the most delicious like ice cream milkshake, right? With like heaps of ice cream in there and some peanut butter and a bunch of milk and, you know, blend up some oats in there, blend up some banana, make this like super thick ice cream thick shake. And you get to recommend that people eat that, right? So that they can get enough calories and they can get enough protein into them. Mm. Or let's say that they were serving like little potato gems at the hospital. And this person's like, yeah, that would taste really good, but it might really hurt to kind of swallow that. What you could do is you could just lather that stuff in some ketchup and then squish it down and and munch it up. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of things that people don't realize. And we didn't realize going into dietetics that there's a lot that goes into play at the hospital in terms of nutrition, like even in terms of some patients like the elderly patients or people who have had mouth surgery or throat surgery, there's even like thickened water, like Mm. because water, people actually, um, things that are a certain consistency such as water is a choking hazard. So things that are too thick, but also too thin as well. So they actually thicken the water up so that you kind of drink it like a sludge and that way you won't choke on it. And there's just so many different things that you have to acknowledge, like there's pureed meals. So let's say the, in the bed next to you, someone might be having a nice steak with some mashed potato and some veg, but then you look over across from you and then on the other side, someone's having that exact same meal, but it's just blended up. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Delicious, right? Yeah. But yeah, I remember doing things on the computer and how you had to like drop down which diet someone would have. And there's mm. so many options like, you know, pureed, smooth, minced, like nil by mouth. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> Poor boy who gets nil by mouth. But, you know, but. Well, I, th- I think something else to acknowledge that, especially with people who have the more serious conditions, is that the appetite really does go out the window. Like, Imagine if you are in palliative care with cancer and the amount of stress, anxiety and depression associated with having cancer, like Mm -hmm. pain aside, like the the mental and psychological side of things would be just really, really not good. Mm -hmm. And even things like, you know, for cancer patients, right, when you're undergoing chemotherapy and different types of treatment, there's actually a period there where your immune system is just through the floor. You have a very, very weak immune system and your neutrophils are incredibly low, right? If you had a family member who, you know, had some preconceived idea that, oh, hospital food is so unhealthy, I'm going to make, bring you your own food, right? And they bring you like some big salad or something from the market the doctors and the dietitians are gonna be like, no, that's not actually even allowed in this room because a huge component of dietary needs, right, for cancer patients and food safety is actually making sure that food is very, very hygienic. And Mm. even if someone brings you a big salad, but from outside the hospital, there is a risk that, you know, there could be some sort of harmful bacteria on that salad that could actually make you incredibly sick when your immune system is really low. So the hospital has a huge responsibility for making sure that there is like so much food safety that goes into these meals. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. Like from the 
there's so many factors they examine like how do they transport the meals and there's different systems that we had to learn about mm. and the benefits and negatives like how do they maintain the heat or the temperature of the meals from the kitchen because some hospitals are huge like the royal brisbane hospital i think it used to be like the biggest hospital in the southern hemisphere but basically how do they get it from the kitchen to the the last ward which might be half an hour away and over a kilometer away oh, so like it was just, crazy you know i i worked in that hospital right yeah. you've got to follow this guy around in this uh with this huge like food tray on all these wheels right mm. and the elevators are massive to fit these things and then they roll it out onto the certain wards you know and then the dietetics assistants they come and take the food and you know they uh deliver it to the patients so yeah, yeah huge system but anyway that kind of blew our minds but <laughs> guys so ne the next question is about training is it yeah so the next question is about training and it's actually about our improvement seasons so this next question says how long will your improvement season be after all your competitions Hey guys, just a reminder that we don't just coach physique athletes, but we do coach anyone with a health and fitness related goal. Therefore, if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com or alternatively, click the link in the show notes below. Cool, so this is very thought provoking and quite fitting since we're, I guess, sort of nearing the end of our season mm. we're getting to the start of the end if yeah. that makes sense yeah well you know i'm about one and a half weeks out from my second show and you are six and a half weeks out from the first show mm. and then that would put us at around 10 10, -ish, 10 yeah. weeks out from the very last show yeah so not long in the scheme of things at all so it's important that we start thinking about it and now that we are both very lean like tiara is obviously in stage condition i'm only like one or two kilos away from stage condition so we have a very good understanding of what our physiques look like now and how competitive we'll be and i can safely say that we're both competitive there's no doubt about that whatsoever but we are still both quite young and ultimately we see the next time as we compete as it's game on like if we don't get pro cards this season we're leaving no stone unturned and we're not going to compete again until we're confident we can give a pro card our best shot that's our way of thinking because like we are athletes but that's part of why we do it we we both have an athletic background and we like winning we like doing our best so yeah that's that's to kind of prelude what we're about to say exactly you know as natural bodybuilders it takes time and if we want to be at the very tip top right we have to sacrifice you know a little bit of that time and that excitement away from the stage for a few years mm. right to then really come back and be just undeniably dangerous yeah yeah so we have had discussions about this of course i guess this is the first time we're saying it on the podcast but next time that we plan to compete right now will be season b 2023 yep. so about two and a half years away so that should be a good freaking amount of time to you know really obviously build our business build our lives and build our physiques yes definitely so the big thing for me will be obviously having that much time off will be really beneficial and there's certain goals that i would like to achieve like I would love to gain three kilos of muscle each year within that time period. So adding six kilos to my stage weight would be fairly incredible. And I think I can do it. I've added about probably five kilos 
within my last off season, which was about two to three years. Mm -hmm. But within that time, I had a horrible back injury and I had other injuries as well. I, I think I calculated it. I was injured to the extent where I couldn't train very effectively for about half my off season. So automatically, if I can not be injured and I have so much more understanding now, basically my whole, both of our routines are constructed for training and for recovery and for nutrition. We have more knowledge now, all that kind of stuff. So I really think we both have what it takes to make some really crazy improvements. Oh yeah, absolutely. Right. And I'm just so excited because even this past year, right, I wouldn't have competed season A again this year if I could have actually gone through with the whole thing last year. Right. Mm -hmm. But it was just a special circumstance because I'm like, it just have unfinished business. You know, I really want to give this a shot. So I went to work, right? And I gained like 10 kilograms in six months. And then I entered into another six month prep. But hell, I put on two kilograms worth of stage weight from just that six month off season. So if I can quadruple that, <laughs> oh my goodness me, right? So with two years of solid building and then another solid six month prep, that's just going to be insane. And again, we're both only just going to be like 26 at that time. So still very young, mid twenties, but by that time, a good amount of muscle maturity on us mm. for that age. Do you see yourself taking your body weight to new levels? If let's say you want to gain three, four, five kilos of stage weight, mm -hmm. you're not going to be able to stay the same weight, surely. Oh no, I'm definitely not staying 59 kilograms right now. That'd be a good joke. No, I mean in your off season. So how will your off season weights differ? Cause like, I know like there's no point in me staying the same weight in the off season. That's mm -hmm. going to be a waste of time. Well, the highest I've ever been in my life was 71 kilograms, but I'd argue that was just too fat, man. Mm -hmm. Like for me, that's just too big. I don't need to be 71 kilograms. I think in this coming off season, highest I probably would want to get is like probably 68, 69 again, but I've been that weight before, but definitely in much better shape at that weight. So again, so if, it if makes sense to me. If there's multiple years, surely you will reach 69, let's say in a, in a year's time. Mm -hmm. That means you still have over a year to go of, of making progress. Yeah. I just honestly like going through this past prep and again in my past few preps I've always had to lose close to 10 kilograms like as a female my size it is a lot of weight I feel like I would definitely be more comfortable losing closer to like the 8 kilogram mark rather than 10 mm -hmm. kilos so obviously we're just spitballing numbers here but I'm 59 kilograms right now you know let's say next time I get on stage in two and a half years I'm closer to that like 60 and a half, 61 kilograms, right? That would have me, because I'm very tall. I'm over 176 centimeters tall. That with a good amount of muscle mass, plus eight kilograms, probably, yeah, around that 69 kilogram mark. Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that's a solid plan. Mm, yeah, it should be good. But, you know, by that time, hopefully coronavirus is, you know, Gone. <laughs> yeah, boy, it's just something in the history books that all the uh, kitties that were probably born this past year to do to everyone just being so bored at home, right, um, is all sorted out. And hopefully international travel is back by then and we can just make the most of that season, right? Obviously, we can do ICN. Hopefully we can do ICN Worlds. We can go over to the US and do WNBF Worlds if that's still held over there and experience New York City. I obviously want to give IFBB another crack that year. So good things to come, right? And I think it's just smart for us. It's giving ourselves a good amount of time, again, to build our physiques, but take time away from the stage to really focus on 
really building our business, you know, by that time, hopefully we have a house, a lot of other life goals apart from mm. just bodybuilding. Yeah. A lot of other things that aren't as we don't really need to mention on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But. Oh, we need to travel a little bit too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's been a while, mate. <laughs> I mean, we, we paid for a holiday before COVID. We didn't get to go on it. So we still got credit for that. Literally. Did we book that like a year and a half ago? Cause we yeah. booked that at the beginning of my like 2019 prep. Mm, that's crazy what on earth we need to get to bali club med (laughs) but yeah that's uh pretty much the plan for when we're going to compete next and again the goal is to just come back super dangerous cool so the the final question that we're going to answer is basically asking about the discrepancy between training during prep versus in the improvement season and how that differs for us Mm -hmm. so i want you to start how does your training differ between improvement season and prep so I think we'll, we'll, we'll relate this more to us and not in general, just because there's going to be a lot of differences depending on the individual mm. and their recovery capabilities. So basically what I did, there was a slight difference, but not very much difference at all. The main difference really just comes down to potentially exercise selection and my recovery capabilities. So in the off season, I actually slowly tapered down my volume to for mainly for lower body so that I was doing maybe 14 sets for my lower body muscle groups like quads, hamstrings and glutes. And instead of probably 17 to 18, so not a huge reduction, but definitely enough that I noticed it within the session. So I, I started doing mainly two sets for squats, leg press, RDLs, hip thrusts. Then I'll do three sets for like leg extension, leg curl. And that really helped me like get stronger, but also recover and not experience as many niggles in my lower body, which was amazing. And my upper body stayed around the same at slightly higher, closer to 20 sets per week for each of my upper body uh, muscle groups. And that basically stayed the same or has stayed the same throughout the whole of prep. So I haven't really changed my volume at all just cause I've been, if anything, my recovery might even be a little bit better purely because I'm not getting stronger or I'm getting stronger very slowly in some movements, but potentially because my cardiovascular system is better, I'm not 100% sure, or maybe it's just a cumulative effect, or maybe I'm just distracted with prep and I'm not focusing too much on my aches and pains. There's a a bunch of different things I could could, uh, think of. But what has changed more is probably the the psychological perspective of training and really maximizing the RPE and not backing off. And yeah, because as you, as your energy availability goes down, it's really important to maintain that intensity. And probably the final thing I'll mention is the rep range. My capabilities of doing higher rep ranges like 12 to 15, 15 to 20, 20 to 30 has really reduced. And if I was to do those sorts of rep ranges now, mainly the 20 to 30 I'm talking about is I would really just lag off and I wouldn't be able to do as much as before. So that is so interesting you say that because I'm the exact opposite. Yeah, it's interesting. I, maybe maybe it might have something to do with type two versus type one fibers because I'm definitely more type two. And so what I've done is I've just, over the course of my blocks, this is the fourth block I think of this prep 
and I do six week blocks. So yeah, this would be the fourth block that I've just started. Over time, I've just slowly decreased the rep ranges so that the intensity is still the same. So like, let's say for leg press, I started off doing 12 to 15. For my first block, I then decreased it to 12 to 15 to 10 to 12, and now I'm doing eight to 10. And the intensity has stayed the same because I've increased the amount of weight I'm lifting because I feel much more comfortable psychologically still giving a high intensity, but not doing that for more reps uh, than I need to, because we know that doing anywhere from six to 30 reps is effective for hypertrophy. If anything, the eight to 12 rep range should encompass most of that around two thirds. And so that I know I'm in a good spot in terms of the amount of volume in terms of rep range and the intensity. So hopefully that kind of makes sense. I'm basically tailoring my training, still remaining evidence-based. I have had some movement selection as well that I've changed. Like like what? So instead of doing back squats forever because that was crippling me, uh, I, I switched those to Smith squats. Now I'm doing hack squat. And instead of doing seated barbell OHP, I switched to the Smith machine. Instead of doing barbell bench, I'm doing machine press. So basically more stable exercises and I'm using a belt for a lot more of my lower body lifts. Like I'm even using a belt for my leg press and my hack squat because it makes a huge difference for me. And I don't see any downsides for this short to moderate term in prep. Mm -hmm. So yeah, hopefully that all makes sense. Nothing out of this world. Like I'm not, I haven't suddenly started doing CrossFit or I'm not doing 12 round fitness or I'm not running or anything like that. It's just basically ways of making training still really effective still able to inc have a high intensity, still able to maintain my strength whilst accomplishing the goal of fat loss. And I think that's the main take home message, right? Whatever you were doing that helped to build your physique, why on earth would you do a 180 and completely mm. change it when you go into a dieting phase and you're trying to retain every single ounce of that hard earned muscle? Yeah, so, but what about you? How have you changed your training? Yeah, well, I think pretty similar to you, like we said, right? Like not that much changes. Like ever since my improvement season going into prep, I've had the same split. I've been training full body five days per week, right? And exercise selection there has been pretty damn consistent the entire time, right? Exercise selection, also just the order of my exercises. Everything's been pretty damn consistent. I think obviously the main thing is, is when you're in improvement season, right? Energy availability is high. Carbohydrates are really high, mm. right? You're in a surplus, you're gaining weight. Obviously, there's a lot more room there for progression, right? In terms of strength and able to pump out more reps and everything like that. But certainly I found it definitely during the first few months of prep, like definitely during the first half of prep, you can still take away some good solid PBs. Yeah. Again, it just comes down to your psychology. Like mm. if you want it, get after it, right? Pull that weight, push that weight, you've got this. And I find that maintaining strength on or building strength during a prep, during lower body movements is a hell of a lot easier than upper body yeah. movements for sure. I think one of the big take homes from prep for me is that if, if you put your mind to it, you can maintain your strength, not easily, but it's definitely doable for pretty much everyone if you're smart about it mm. and if you choose the correct movements. Yeah. If anything, like some movements honestly, again, feel easier because 
you just have such better cardiovascular fitness and cardio respiratory fitness. Like honestly, I was lifting less weight in my improvement season, like nine kilograms heavier on the Smith machine and for Bulgarians. And they felt so much harder. And I was eating like 450 grams of carbs a day. Right. But like, I would just be gassed after a set, probably because there was so much goddamn glucose in my bloodstream, right? And my resting heart rate was like 15 beats higher per minute. So it was just a lot more taxing on my cardiovascular system. But now I'm lifting like, you know, on a Smith machine lunge, I'm lifting like 65 kilograms for three sets of 12 per leg now. I started off in the improvement season around 50 kilograms. It feels way easier now, despite eating 150 grams of carbs per day and being nine kilograms lighter. Mm. So yeah, it it really does come down to psychology and just how bad do you want it? And are you truly capable of pushing the weight? And again, we're talking about like being in a hypertrophy, quote unquote, rep range here. I certainly probably couldn't lift one RMs, but Mm. we're not those type of athletes anyway. But essentially... I really don't change too much. I don't change too much. Like if a PB is there, I'm going to take it. Generally for each exercise, I set myself a rep range, right? Like let's say that you have a Smith machine lunge, okay? And you start off with a certain weight and I want to hit anywhere between 10 to 12 reps, right? I will progressively work my way up so that I can hit three sets of 12 with that weight. And then what I would do is I would slightly increase the weight, maybe by 2.5 or five kilograms. And then I would try to go back down to the bottom of the rep range. So try to get out three sets of 10. Then the next session, right? Get out two sets of 10, one set of 11 and so on. So yeah, during this prep, I've really been able to maintain or continue to build a lot of lower body strength, upper body though, like again, losing nine kilograms, like my pushing strength there's no, there's just no chance that it's going to keep progressing where it was. Like, I'm not going to be benching 60 kilograms Mm. again for a while, but in that circumstance, I just hold on for dear life, trying to maintain my strength. Yeah. Right. So on things like, Oh, there's a huge difference between progressing versus maintaining, Mm -hmm. just like maintaining your muscle mass, like the amount of training you need to do to maintain versus progress in muscle mass is is huge yeah exactly but if it's it's a win man like if i can shoulder press near the amount or the same amount that i could nine kilograms ago i'd say that's a freaking win Mm. because like my power to weight ratio right it's much higher yeah like yeah weight to strength ratio whatever you want to call it but yeah, it doesn't change too much, man. Like, honestly, you just can't let yourself get into that dieting mindset and be like, oh, you know, I'm on low carbs or like, I don't feel like I have much energy today. Like, I'm just going to pick up the lighter dumbbells and just, you know, again, you some it's probably very tempting for some people to lift lighter weights and do higher reps. Even mm. that's crossed my mind before, but I'm like, nope, I'm following Whereas my, I, following I my program. <laughs> yeah, but uh you know, but sometimes at the same time, like it honestly does feel easier too. like you genuinely feel like you get a better connection, Mm. like something like on a leg press or something or on a hip thrust, you might lower the weight down a little bit, increase the reps by a bit. And you genuinely get a much better connection and a much better pump rather than just trying to do these like half reps or something. Cause you're just trying to hold on to that number that you could lift when you were much heavier. Mm. I guess my sort of mindset, which is a bit extreme for some people is I would just rather go to failure because then at least I can say okay I I did all that I could now I can rest easy Mm -hmm. and I actually did that on the leg press on on Tuesday because I had to switch leg presses because I I started training legs at World Gym Brisbane and 
The They do have a hammer strength leg press, but I literally did one rep at my usual weight and I couldn't get it up because it was such an old uh, leg press and it needs to be oiled and stuff like that. So I switched leg press and then, because I wasn't 100% sure of the weight I wanted, I just chucked on what I thought was correct and just went to failure. Mm -hmm. And that kind of set the scene in terms of, okay, where am I going to adjust the weight to for my subsequent sets? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, hopefully that helps you guys, right? Again, don't change too much. If it was working during your improvement season, it helped build your muscle. There's a damn good chance it's going to help retain your muscle. Just don't underestimate what you're truly capable of, even when it's the last thing you feel like doing is lifting some mm. heavy ass weight. Awesome. Cool. Well, We'll end this episode on one thing that we learned this week each. Okay. Well, one thing that I learned this week is that I definitely have a sweet spot for melatonin <laughs> because, you know, Jack and I, we've been dieting for well over five months now, right? And uh, unfortunately, when you've been dieting for a long time, sleep quality isn't exactly the best, right? You're very likely to wake up during the middle of the night, go pee, and then you can't fall asleep for an hour or two, which is just frustrating, right? And it's not very conducive for our ultimate goals of changing our body composition, having a good quality of life. You need to sleep at night. So we got amongst some melatonin. Uh, we first ordered this packet that had the tablets were in two milligrams and we tried taking two milligrams and yeah, it helped us sleep at the start, but like then we were still kind of waking up during the middle of the mm. night. So it helped with sleep onset, but not really to maintain that. Mm -hmm. And then we started, we we're like, okay, like the recommendations online are like anywhere between like two to five milligrams kind of thing. So we're like, okay, they're two milligram tablets. Let's try taking two so we can have four. We kind of had the same issue. Like we weren't getting the best quality sleep. Then we ordered some other ones that were in three milligram tablets. We took the three milligram ones, we are sleeping like babies, mm. sleeping right through the night. So touch wood. Yeah, <laughs> touching the table. But, you know, definitely found that sweet spot. I can say well, on behalf of both of us that three milligrams of melatonin, mm. which is the general recommendation. Well, I have a slightly different opinion for you. I'm not convinced that it's just the amount because I would have thought that four milligrams would do the same thing as three. But because we're using a different product, I'm convinced that there's something different about the product that mm. we're using because, like, I've, I have noticed a difference and whether that's a placebo or not, who knows, but yeah. yeah I, I, it could be one or the other yeah. because again, like it's in milligrams, right? It's such a tiny, tiny dose. Mm. So if you're taking one extra milligram, that might throw off your sleep. If you take one less, again, it's about that hormesis. You might find mm, that sweet that. spot, but either way, we're sleeping much better at night. So hoorah, good for, for good for us. <laughs> yeah. All right. So Jack, what did you learn this week? So I was tossing up what to say. I thought I'd say one for the people uh, rather than saying one that wouldn't be as useful. But basically what I've started doing is we know that retrogradation is important for our oats and cream of wheat. And what I do now is I cook my cream of wheat and let it sit for a bit and even for like 15, 20 minutes, let it retrogradate, thicken up a bit. Then I cook it again and it thickens up even more. So that's kind of like the little tip that I learned that uh that has really helped volumize my oats and cream of wheat yeah so now we are cooking it twice right <laughs> yeah. always mastering our own craft yeah literally <laughs> the sky is the limit with cream of wheat mm. and i mean if you if you want super thick cream of wheat try adding wheat bran to it and basically you blend the wheat bran up with the flour and that'll help thicken it up because the wheat bran is so fibrous mm. and i mean i just actually looked at instagram then and we had a question about what is cream of wheat meant to taste like? Because either I'm making it wrong or it tastes like cardboard. 
and don't expect it's not some sort of sweet magical cake flowery thing it's literally just flour and some cinnamon like that's how tierra makes it no i had cocoa powder and sweetener okay so it tastes a little bit sweeter but <laughs> personally like i don't eat my cream of wheat like that i mix it with protein powder and i have cocoa with it and stuff like that so it just depends how you want to make it it's like saying my my cake just tastes like a sponge cake because i didn't add any icing to it mm-hmm. just add some different things to your cream of wheat add some dried food dried fruit like sultanas add some sweetener add some protein powder top it with some peanut butter top it with some jam there's more than one way to make it like the the base of it is just flour but then you can experiment with whatever you want yeah exactly blend whatever the heck you want into it (laughs) but yeah definitely add a little bit of sweetener i just use those little banana is amazing mashed banana if you put banana and protein powder in it then that's when actually rises up into more of a thick spongy cake Well, yeah, the only difference between cream of wheat and a protein cake is cream of wheat is stirred. Mm -hmm. You might add a little bit extra water. I don't stir mine, though. Well, I do. Yeah, that's (laughs) the thing. Okay, guys, keep your eyes out because we're going to be recording two separate YouTube tutorials in the future showing how Mm. we both make Jack's cream of wheat and Tierra's cream of wheat. Yes. Awesome. Okay, guys, well, thank you very much for tuning in. If you did enjoy the podcast, remember, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See ya.